Well, I'm currently doing a three-week fitness challenge. It's, I do this exercise thing called CrossFit, and every year they do this thing called the Open. And it's, it's where for three weeks, really anybody who does that kind of exercise does one of the same exercises for three weeks in a row. And the really good people then win their way to better and better competitions. Um, but for the average person, it's, it's just a way of sort of testing your fitness. And it's cool because um, there's over 400,000 people that signed up for the Open. And you put your scores in online so I can see how bad I'm doing compared to everybody else that did these workouts. It's my age and did it the way I did it and all of this. Um, and then even around the world, there are people that don't sign up, but still everybody does the exercises. So what you, you, there's a kind of community of, uh, I, w- I would say there's, there's uh, uh, just a million people probably doing these. And then 400,000 of them signed up so you can actually see your score. It's, it's kind of this cool thing, but it's this great test every year to see kind of where you are. How's your fitness and, and uh, how you doing as compared to other people. And, and I, I've been thinking about that because as I've been doing this series on the great prayers of the Bible, I have felt like that this sermon series, more than I anticipated, has been kind of a spiritual checkup. Like, how spiritually fit are you? And we get to kind of peek into these prayers of some of these Bible characters and say, what was going on in their life? What was going on in their faith? Why did they pray the way they did? And it's, it's kind of like a checkup. Like, how are you compared to some of these prayers? And how would, you, how would you respond if you were in some of these situations? And So it's been great as we've done this series. I've had some fantastic conversations after church almost every week where somebody's coming up to me and having a pretty deep conversation about uh, how somebody's prayer in the Bible is uh, making them think about something going on in their life. And uh, so that's been, that's been fun. I've enjoyed that. And, and now that we're heading into Lent, we're making a little pivot in the series, and we're moving to the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts, and then uh, in two weeks, when I'm back, we're going to be looking at the prayers of Jesus through Easter. So we're going to look at the prayer life of Jesus in particular. So we're sort of carrying on the theme, but we are pivoting a little bit to the New Testament. We are in Acts chapter 4 today, and uh, that we're jumping into Acts is worthy of kind of knowing where we are in the book of Acts. Acts is actually a part of a two-book series, okay? The same guy wrote the book of Luke and wrote Acts. And sometimes we, we call it Luke-Acts because it's really like part one and part two. Part one is about Jesus and the life and ministry of Jesus. Part two, Acts, is really the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you have Pentecost at the beginning. It's like the birth of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit was around before but the Holy Spirit is born in a special way. So there's like this interesting parallel between Luke and Acts. So we get the Holy Spirit. Jesus had ascended to heaven. He tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. They do. Then one day, I mean like 40 days later, uh, the Holy Spirit comes bursting into the room. Luke can only seem to describe it as tongues of fire that are seem to be over people. And people start speaking all kinds of weird tongues and in languages. And a bunch of people get saved that day. It sort of bursts over into the streets. And uh, Pentecost was not a... Pentecost already was a Jewish holiday. So that means people from all over, the all, Jews from all over were in town for Pentecost. So when this, when this Holy Spirit thing happens, a whole bunch of people get exposed to this. Words going through the street about all these baptisms that are taking place. 
Peter gives this sermon and, and it, it's a big deal. A little while later, Peter and John were walking into the temple. And uh, they see this guy who's begging. And the, the text tells us that he was lame, so he couldn't walk. But he was over 40 years old. So he spent basically his whole life begging there. He's a fixture in the community, right? All the people who go to the temple every day, they have seen this man all the time. And they asked, he asked Peter and John for money, and they kind of feel around in their pockets. They don't have any. And the text says, Peter says to him basically, hey, I don't have any money, but here's what I have. Get up and walk. And so this man who's been a fixture in the community as a beggar, sitting him there, is now all of a sudden walking around telling everybody what happened. You can see like this, this sort of growing movement, right? This growing energy, this growing pulse. And um, the Holy Spirit, and, and there's word going around. And, but but you, you think about that from the perspective of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. I mean, here you had put this guy to death, this Jesus character. You're like, okay, we got to get this movement down. And from their perspective, they were trying to save people. We don't quite always understand this. But from their perspective, number one, if we start a rebellion, Romans are not going to like that. They're going to come in and wipe us out. And number two, if we don't stay true to the one true God, we're going to end up in exile again. We're going to end up in slavery again. And so they were very protective of the people. And so any of these little movements that would get started, they tried to squash pretty immediately. So they got Jesus put to death. But then all these rumors started that maybe he was still alive. Right? And then there's all these rumors that these followers are talking about him still. And then there's something happens at Pentecost where it's a big deal. And there's, I guess, people learning in all kinds of tongues. And everybody's talking about what happened. And thousands of people, they get baptized that day. But you can see this sort of rising tension in that room, okay, in the Pharisee and the scribe room. And now this man gets up and starts walking around. Now everybody's talking about that because everybody knew that dude. Okay, everybody knew him because he was right there all the time. So they don't want to get in trouble with the Romans. They want to protect the faith. So here's what they do. They bring Peter and John in for questioning. And Peter and John... Uh, remember, they're, they're not the sharpest of tools in the shed. Okay? They're fishermen from Galilee. They get brought into all these religious elite people. And uh, Annas is there. Caiaphas is there. The, the people who tried Jesus are there. But yet they're pretty bold. Let me, let me read a little bit of their exchange from Acts 4, starting in verse 13. And then we'll get to our text Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council and conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they heard, when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man 
on whom his sight of heat of this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they were getting a man and they're like, what are we, what are we supposed to do? How do you punish somebody for healing somebody? That's a weird conversation to have. Don't heal anybody else. Okay. Right. That's a hard conversation to have, but that they're doing it in the name of Jesus, that these uneducated fishermen are being so bold. And if they do get somebody in trouble, you know what that makes them? A martyr. They also seem to know we don't want any martyrs here. It seems like this Jesus character has already become a martyr. We don't need any more martyrs. So what do they do? They decide to threaten Peter and John and then let them go. But, but you need to understand from their perspective, Peter and John, these are not empty threats, right? Who's in the room? Annas and Caiaphas. They crucified Jesus. This is, these are not empty threats. When Caiaphas says, you're in trouble... You are in trouble. They all know they can follow through. Peter and John saw Jesus go through. What happens when this room of people tells you to stop doing something and you don't do it? So these are not empty threats. Okay? These are serious threats and they know it. How would you handle a threat like that? Like if, 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 if authorities came to you and you knew they were right. You knew they would follow through. And they said, if you keep going to church, you're in trouble. Okay? If you keep following Jesus, you're in trouble. For us, it's a, it's a healthy, like, hypothetical question, right? But for lots of Christians around the world, it's actually not hypothetical at all. You can check out an organization called The Voice of the Martyrs at persecution.com to hear some of the stories of persecution around the world. I looked it up this week. These are... Just a couple of the more recent ones. People like Lee Junsai, who's serving five and a half years in prison for protesting the Chinese government's attempts to remove the cross from on top of the church building in 2019. They tried to take the cross off the church. He protested. He's in jail for five and a half years. In February last month, a pastor in Cuba, Cuba, was using biblical principles to question some of his government's policies. The government came in and did a search of his property, totally tore his house apart, not looking for anything in particular, but really as a threat for how publicly he had spoken out against, hoping to pressure him and get him to settle down and cooperate. On January 30th, militant Fulani uh, Muslims attacked a village in southern Kaduna, Nigeria, mainly because there were a number of Christians in the village. They killed eight Christians, burned most of the homes in the village down. Everybody, that's, that's not like a first century persecution. That was January 30th. That's around the world. Could you be a Christian if it meant risking your life? Do you know that for what you're doing right now, a lot of people in the world have to do what you're doing in secret? Okay? Because the police absolutely will come, or the police absolutely will stand at the door and write your name down that you came here. That is a reality around a good portion of the world. What would you do if you could lose your job for being here? You could lose your freedom, you could lose your life for being here. Do you now understand the dilemma that the early church is in? But let's, let's, let's not mess around. When they're being threatened, they know it's for serious. They, they know it's real. This is a do or die moment for the church. Actually, it's a do and die. You keep going with this, they know what's going to happen. Somebody is going to be killed. We are going to be persecuted for this. How would you respond 
Let's read. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit? And then quote from Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They continue. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pilate among the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here's what they do. They get threatened. They come together. They come together. We got to be together for this moment and we start to pray. They start to find strength both in, in, in them, each other and looking to God for help. And the prayer that's given in Acts is a group prayer, although they didn't print bulletins, right? So it probably wasn't like they all chanted this same prayer together. It's it's either sort of a summary prayer or somebody wrote down a prayer out of it. But the idea is we're all praying. And here's kind of the summary of what the prayer was about. And actually, uh, it, it has a lot of echoes to the prayer of Hezekiah that we talked about just a few weeks ago. There's a lot of parallels in the order and that kind of thing. The key word for them is, is this psalm, uh, quote from Psalm 2, 1 and 2, and it's the word anointed. They read that word anointed in Hebrew Messiah. And they, they read that as a, a prophecy about, about the coming Messiah, that when the Messiah was come, there would be Gentiles that would go after him, that he would be persecuted. And then they read that to say that actually the conspiracy of Pilate and Herod to crucify Jesus was part of this. And so they saw the threats against them as further part of the prophecy. Like if they were going to threaten Jesus, the anointed, they're probably going to threaten us too. After this connection with Psalm 2, the prayer gives four just crazy ideas. Crazy ideas, surprising elements. Crazy idea number one, they actually in their prayer assumed that the work of Herod and Pilate was God's will. Did you catch that? They're talking about Pilate and Herod crucifying Jesus as actually being part of God's plan, as being predestined as something that God brought forth. That's a crazy idea to me that God, God can purposefully use those who stand against his plan to do his plan. That's wild. But that isn't the crazy idea to me. The craziest thing to me is what they don't ask for. If it were me, I would really ask that the persecution be taken away. Anybody else? Can we just admit that? Hey, you know what would be great, God, right now? You know where all those Pharisees meet? Like a fire would be awesome. Like, take out my enemies, Lord. And there are those kind of prayers in the Bible where David in his, in his distress is saying, Lord, Lord, take out my enemies. Fight for me. 
Lord, Lord, give me divine protection. Keep me from the pain. But, but notice, they don't pray that. They assume there's going to be prayer, there's going to be persecution. See, what, that's the third crazy idea to me, that instead of praying that the, the pain be taken away, the persecution and the threats, what they pray for is boldness. Boldness. Lord, give me the courage that in the face of all this that's going to come against me, that I would push, that I would go, that I would speak out. I mean, that's the, that, that's the fourth element of the craziness here, is that, that they actually have this understanding that Jesus is going to continue to do miracles in their midst. They assume in the prayer that God's going to do miraculous signs and wonders, that God's going to show up, that God's going to heal, that all this stuff is going to continue. They assume that. Is that your assumption? When you come to church, that there's going to be a healing today? Is your assumption that God's going to show up and do miraculous things in your life and in this world? That's their assumption. So what they pray for isn't miracles. They assume that. What they pray for is, when I get the opportunity to tell God about, to tell people about why the miracle happens, give me the boldness to proclaim it as Jesus Christ who did it, instead of cowering in fear from people that won't like that answer. They pray for boldness. They assume miracles. They don't pray that their enemies would be vanquished. That's what I would pray. They pray for boldness that when the miracle happens, give me the voice to say who it comes from, to proclaim the name of Jesus, that these Pharisees are so quick to say to Peter and John, don't do anything else. Don't talk about the Jesus guy anymore. They say, give me the boldness to keep that going. And what comes of this prayer? Well, three things happen. First, the building shakes. The building shakes. Okay, the text says that the building was shaken. I don't think that means, like, metaphorically, we were all sort of shook up. Okay, I think actually it's just saying, like, the building shook. What would happen if we had a prayer that shook the building? Okay. That somebody who in the back who was not really praying that just like stopped in for the service that day was like freaking out because it was an earthquake. No, the building shook. That's the kind of prayer this was. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, which is interesting to me because aren't they already filled with the Holy Spirit? We are at Pentecost. They already have the Holy Spirit, but it's like, it's like another dose or something. It's like they, they, they get refilled. They get removed by the Holy Spirit and then they continue to speak in boldness. And in the long run, they remain bold. But I mean, if you keep reading in Acts, the persecution continues. I mean, eventually we do get a martyr. Okay, the first martyr, a guy named Stephen. He started the deacons. Okay, and Stephen gets stoned. But you know what? The prayer also comes true because if you follow through the persecution, some of the great things of the church are born out of the persecution. Right? The one person that's really stirring up a lot of the persecution. The one person that really encourages the crowd to stone Stephen is a guy who goes by the name in Jewish Saul. But when he starts traveling around, he goes by his Roman name, Paul. Paul comes out of this persecution. Out of this persecution, the church begins to travel. Okay, The church didn't just stick there. They couldn't stay there. They had to move. And so God did use the persecution of the church to help be sort of the the the. There's, a, there's an old saying, and I, it's not part of my sermon. I'm coming up with it. Uh, I can't remember it exactly, but it's like the blood of the martyrs are the nutrients for the church that grew. 
and I'm, I'm, mess, I'm butchering that. I wish I'd had that. I wish I'd thought of that on Thursday instead of on Sunday morning. Okay? But, but it's because of the martyrs and because of the persecution that the church began to grow. And I think we as a church should be praying for boldness. I mean, this seems far-fetched. It seems out there. It seems hypothetical to say, oh, the church is, you know, we don't have persecution like they have in China, like they have in Cuba, like they have in, in Nigeria. But, but how many of you remember when church kind of had the home field advantage? Do you remember when Christian was the home court religion? Nothing else was open? <laughs> we had no competition. And the expectation was that you went to church. How many of you remember when people used to dress up to go out to church at, after church for lunch? If you skipped church, you still dressed up because you didn't want anybody to know you skipped church. You know what I'm saying? You, you have, if you wanted to be the president of the bank, you better be Presbyterian or Methodist. Okay? And you... Is that the world we live in anymore, folks? No, I, re- I remember when on the news... Even as a kid, I remember on the news when big things would happen, important pastors would be on there. Okay, Billy Graham, they'd find out his thoughts of the day. But listen, Christianity does not have the home field advantage anymore. The crowds are no longer cheering for us to be successful. There's not pressure to go to church. I would say that the argument is switching. Okay, there's more arguments to not go to church. That Christianity isn't no longer the dominant voice. In fact, in a lot of ways, we are becoming the minority voice and maybe even the despised voice. I think think this may be scary to think about, but the way the world is going, our voice in the church is getting smaller and smaller and going to be more and more problematic for the culture that we live in. And I think as Christians, we're going to have to be bold. And I see a lot of churches that just seem to go right with wherever the culture is going and have no boldness, no backbone. Right? The church of the future has to be a church of boldness, of bravery. And that's not going to come from us because we're going to cower and we're going to lose our nerve. We've got to be bold enough to say, God's calling us to this. God's going to show up and do miraculous things. And we're going to be bold enough to keep to the truths that we need to keep to. We are going to, in everything, keep proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, even though the world doesn't want to hear it. That kind of boldness for the church is going to be important. Now, we could try to pray against it. We could probably get, try to pray against persecution. We could try to pray against the way the world is going. But in the end, I think the better prayer is the prayer for boldness. Prayer that expects God to show up and praise, Lord, give me the boldness to proclaim Jesus in the middle of whatever you call me to. So let us pray for boldness. Let us expect miracles and signs. Let us pray that God shakes the building, filling us with the Holy Spirit and making us bold as we proclaim Jesus as Lord of all. Let's pray now. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You suffered persecution and the shame of the cross to give us life. And it scares us to think that we may need to take up our cross. That's what you ask of us. Give us boldness that that when we see you and you doing miraculous work in our lives, our church and our world, we might bravely proclaim you as the source. We ask boldness 
for those around the world in the crosshairs of persecution. Lord, shake the building. Shake the world. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. To you be the glory and you alone, now and forever. Amen.